Welcome to Making Synapses, where we take an enthusiast deep dive into neuroscience, looking to understand how our brain works and experimenting with how to modulate it. Kia ora all and welcome to the second installment of Making Synapses. Today what we're going to be getting into is a deep dive of caffeine, kind of talking about uh, where you can find it naturally, how it's used in, uh, throughout history and in our beverages and such, and then really going into the pharmacology side, deep diving along there, along with a bunch of tips and kind of tidbits uh, that goes along the way just for maybe better use. So as a roadmap of the chat that we're going to go over, first of all, just kind of what caffeine is, uh, where it's naturally found, and a bit of a history sort of side of how it's been used in society, and specifically kind of pertaining to um, as it got to European culture or Western society, because hey, that's us. Uh, and a small nod in that will be to its chemistry. Then we'll dive more into the pharmacology type segment, specifically going on the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Pharmacodynamics being how it acts on your body and kinetics being how it moves around your body or how your body acts on it is another good way to say it. Uh, following that, we then go on to uh, tolerance build and talking about withdrawal and kind of overdosing effects with caffeine. And then finishing off with some kind of like more casual, just maybe more personal thoughts from me on caffeine and talking just about uh, behavioral things that maybe you just kind of see in life um, that has less evidence around it in terms of research sort of um, side. But good fun chat. So we'll just pull in and get straight into our overview sort of point. So getting into it, caffeine is a naturally occurring methylxanthine compound. As a plant alkaloid, it acts as an insecticide, which you'll find in a few plants, notably in the seeds, fruit, and leaves. Specifically on some that you may have heard of would be your cocoa, your coffee beans, also the leaves of Camellia sinensis, known as tea leaves, and then also going on to the likes of kola nut and some more niche forms like guarana. In the case of some of these more like niche herbs, like the kola nut and guarana, you may have heard of them more in your energy drink sort of circles. So guarana, you'll find in, say, the energy drink, and that is just as a source of caffeine. So you also have kola nut, which is one of the early ingredients in Coca-Cola back in the late 1800s, where it was actually a pharmacist that made Coca-Cola, and that was a pairing of coca leaf yielding cocaine and kola nut, which yielded caffeine. So it was a pairing made for kind of supporting people with headaches, uh, stomach issues, and then, as you probably would have guessed, uh, supports fatigue or preventing fatigue. Um, that later, of course, was removed from formulation. There's no cocaine in Coca-Cola anymore. There's also no cola nut. Uh, it's just a synthetic caffeine form. Caffeine does, of course, have a further reaching history than in the likes of Coca-Cola. Uh, way back in ancient China, about 5,000 years ago was when it was estimated to become a part of human consumption. And then also in the case of coffee beans, it was about 2,000 years ago in Ethiopia. It was only in the late 1500s that uh, tea really came to Europe for widespread use. And that was, again, as a great source of caffeine. People felt great drinking it. They didn't know why they felt great, but it is just kind of a, an elixir of sorts of the time. Um, 
Around the similar time is when coffee was also becoming popular in the likes of Egypt, Prussia, and Turkey. That's where the first coffee houses started. Around the 1600s, European travelers took that back to Europe, and that's it's kind of like the slow emergence to where we have coffee houses and coffee in our culture today. It's worth noting that at several points in its kind of more early history throughout Europe, it has been subject to a lot of controversy. So coffee as associated with a lot of cultural uprisings. So people got together at the coffee houses, they're chatting, they're full of energy, they want to do something about society. That led to the likes of kings and other rulers wanting to prevent coffee consumption because it caused civil unrest, um, similar to other compounds that we have issues with today. At one point in Italy, it was even deemed as a satanic substance. Um, part of the enthusiasm with coffee and reasons that did cause some unrest is because at that time, uh, clean drinking water was a hard thing to come by. Uh, most folk were drinking you know, like wine and beer throughout most of the day. And so by the act of boiling the water with the coffee, you're cleaning the water and it was a, another substance instead of your wine or another beverage instead of your wine and beer that they could consume. The flip side compared to wine and beer, though, being is that coffee made people more productive, whilst the wine and beer made people less productive. You can see how uh, factory owners and farm owners were quite keen to push the coffee onto their workers compared to that of their previous beer and wine breaks. Um, that did cause issues with beer and wine trade, where, again, people tried to ban the use of coffee because it was compromising economic sort of flip sides. And that was a big one. In Prussia. Then on caffeine itself, it was first isolated in 1819, and it's from this point onwards that we were able to start identifying that it was caffeine itself in these various plants like the kola nut, guarana, coffee beans, cocoa, that created that sense of alertness and uh, other features. And so it's from that point that the research started to deviate. It's like, what are the effects of caffeine rather than just these individual plants? You could easily kind of go on in the history side of tea and coffee for an extended period. Uh, it's not going to be the whole focus of this podcast. So what I'm going to say is you could do a bit more reading. One book that I highly recommend on it, I finished recently, was This Is Your Mind on Plants. It's done by Michael Pollan and he does have an extensive sort of look over at the history side, much more so than um, what we just chatted about. Very interesting read though. Moving on to pharmacology. So getting into pharmacokinetics, how the drug is moved around your body and what your body does to it. That's things like metabolism, absorption, excretion. And then also talking uh, what caffeine as a drug does to our body. And then also talking the pharmacodynamics, what caffeine as a drug does to your body and how that acts on central nervous system like your brain and all around different tissues in your body. So before we get into that, a quick word on dosing. So as caffeine is, in fact, uh, the world's most popular drug, it is always surprising to me how little people know about how much they're consuming. And fair enough, to a degree, uh, every plant, sort of way it's prepared, and uh, all sorts of products have various quantities, and so it is hard to keep track of it all. But as some general guidelines, you can kind of say like your standard drip coffee is talking like 80 to 100 milligrams of caffeine per cup. A cup of black tea is like 50 milligrams. 
And then you've got things like energy drinks, which will range dramatically. That kind of goes from 80 to even 300 milligrams in New Zealand. And that depends a little bit more on uh, local regulations and laws. But for your personal use, always keep in mind that dose is important. It will dramatically impact uh, what you get from it if you are going between like a nice pickup of alertness or if you're going all the way to jitteriness and anxiety and other side effects. But then let's go on and use an example as drinking a cup of coffee. What happens when you do drink that cup of coffee, uh, passing through, say, your mouth, down your throat, into your stomach, and then also into your intestines or gut? Because caffeine is a highly water-soluble substance, that means that it absorbs very easily through your tissues. So even at the stage when you are, say, swirling some coffee in your mouth, it will be absorbing through your mouth tissues, it will be absorbing down through your throat, absorbing through your stomach, and but because it spends most of its time sitting in your gut, that is where most of the absorption occurs. But do keep in mind it is absorbing through every stage, just more of it is absorbed in the gut as it spends more time there. It's been generally accepted in the research circles that uh, at around 45 minutes after ingesting, 99% of the caffeine you have consumed will actually be absorbed from those areas into your circulatory system. Um, it's kind of around that 60 minute, like within 60 minute points that it will actually reach like peak concentration in your blood. And so that's where you might uh, experience the maximal sort of high sort of rush point of caffeine. Where it goes to initially uh, is, so say for example, from your gut absorption, is going through your portal vein system, and that portal vein goes directly into your liver. This is what uh, would typically for most drugs or substances be a first fast metabolism point. The key thing to note on caffeine is that first pass metabolism is not a big factor. A very negligible amount is broken down. From the liver, it will then pretty much all of it be pushed on up to your heart and then be distributed quite rapidly throughout the rest of your body. Again, because it is a very water-soluble but also fat-soluble substance, it will disseminate through like all the tissues of your body uh, including crossing the blood-brain barrier, including uh, passing into placenta if someone has a, uh, if they're pregnant, that baby will also uh, enjoy or not enjoy that cup of coffee, um, depending on kind of, yeah, dosage and effects, and that's worth considering. As it passes into the multiple different tissues in your body, caffeine does have numerous effects, but the principal effect or principal action which it is having on your body is mainly found on its ability as an adenosine receptor antagonist. So the key words there, it's acting on the adenosine receptors and as an antagonist, an antagonist meaning that it binds to those receptors, but it doesn't actually exert action on the receptors. It's, it's simply blocking other compounds from coming in and exerting a true action. Then again, it does bind to multiple different types of adenosine receptors, but the key ones that you will associate with your feeling of alertness and focus and uh, maybe extra motivation is particularly due to A1 and A2A receptors. These receptors will kind of be the focus of our chat just because this is um, 
yeah, principally what is going on when you are feeling caffeine and associated with caffeine. So in order to understand what's going on here with this adenosine receptor binding, it's probably worth just taking a little step back and talking directly on adenosine and kind of the functions there. So adenosine is a byproduct or it's a metabolite of the compound ATP, which many people will know it's kind of like as an energy source for all sorts of chemical reactions throughout our body. But what occurs is that ATP is broken down for energy source and that adenosine is left over. That adenosine can then bind to adenosine receptors that are located mainly in our brain but we also have a bunch throughout our body and the action of that adenosine binding to adenosine receptors is what kind of triggers feelings of need for sleep and rest. This is actually a very valuable function because as your body has say metabolized more ATP it's clearly using more energy and that means that it's got more kind of like waste byproducts hanging around and maybe some damage or just you know like wear and tear that it needs to deal with. So by triggering your body or trying to send your body into a state of sleep, it would give the body time for some recovery and, you know, clear out that waste that this occurs during sleep. And then in terms of the mechanisms of like, you know, you've slept throughout the night, why are you waking up after these adenosine has bound? These adenosine molecules will separate from the receptors and be cleared away during the sleep process. And so that's why after sleep you feel wakefulness because those adenosines aren't bound to those receptors. Um, Kind of talking about these receptors in a very general term right now, but they are actually specific and have their own unique sort of action. So on the A1 receptor, A1 receptors are usually found on wakefulness-stimulating neurons. Uh, Binding to these receptors will actually decrease the activity of that neuron, therefore kind of resulting in, um, again, more the feeling or less feeling of wakefulness because those neurons for wakefulness are acting less. In the case of A2A receptors, they're usually found on neurons that are acting for things that kind of induce sleep. So when a adenosine molecule binds to it, it will promote that neuron to act more, therefore increasing more things like GABA that kind of induce a sleep and uh, rest state. Then how does caffeine fit in? Well, caffeine has a very similar structure to the adenosine molecule. This means that it acts as a equipotent, so it's equivalently competing to bind to these receptors compared to the adenosine. But as an antagonist, so it's not actually acting on the receptor, just binding to it, it's not exerting the actions that these receptors are associated with or neurons are functioning to do. And therefore, it's kind of like it's it's preventing adenosine to do its action. The adenosine will kind of build up and hang around still, but it's not getting to bind and exert its effect on your on your neurobiology or the rest of your body. Therefore, less adenosine binding to these receptors means that you have less of a feeling of sleepiness and more of a feeling of wakefulness. Now, when it comes to specifically how these adenosine receptors correlate to your feelings of wakefulness and um, alertness, it's not really tied fully together yet, but what we do know is that when they are prevented from action, then we get an increase of release of the things, say, dopamine, 
adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine being associated with motivation and kind of like feelings of like a good drive to do something. Uh, and then your adrenaline alertness, and this is similar with noradrenaline. Um, so alertness and increasing activity, kind of uh, pumping your heart more, and a little bit of vasoconstriction, which uh, can result in increased blood pressure. This adrenaline can kind of make your heart pump more. Uh, you do get some vasoconstriction from it too, but a fun note, so there are actually A1 receptors found on your heart muscles as well as your kidney and uh, endothelial and vascular cells, these being in the lining of your blood vessels. Um, so again, A1 receptor is the one that when adenosine binds to it, it will kind of turn things off. So by preventing the adenosine to bind to it, the caffeine is allowing for an increased heart rate. It is allowing for increased kidney function. Increased kidney function is what then results in you urinating more. So if you need to take a whiz more frequently due to caffeine, that is because you are pumping a lot more liquid through your kidneys. And then in the case of the blood vessels, the preventing of action is what can, uh, can actually loosen blood vessels, which is where you start to get some controversy. People say stimulants vasoconstrict from the adrenaline pathways, but then in the case of this, it's also loosening. Really though, at the end result, the adrenaline pathway causes more vasoconstriction, then you get uh, the loosening from it binding to the A1 receptor. So the net result is that caffeine causes your blood vessels to constrict more. This then resulting uh, in some cases in higher blood pressures. So then after all this kind of action in your body, how is your body actually clearing the caffeine? So very little caffeine, estimated to be kind of like half a percent to 2%, depending on individual body characteristics, uh, half a percent to 2% is cleared via the urine. Pretty much all of it is metabolized in your body. And most of this is metabolized in the liver by a specific enzyme known as cytochrome P450, uh, it's kind of like more technical line name is CYPA12 if you are looking to do some further research. The process is by demethylation. So as we kind of specified before, uh, caffeine is a methylxanthine group. What that means is it's a xanthine molecule and it actually has three methyl bonds to it. A methyl is a group containing a carbon and three hydrogens. So because caffeine has three of these, there's actually three separate methyl groups that um, could be removed by this demethylation, and that results in three different main compounds. So most of which uh, that caffeine is metabolized into is what is known as paraxanthine. That's around 84% of the end metabolites of caffeine. So paraxanthine has been found to act pretty much exactly the same as caffeine. It binds to the same receptors with very similar affinity. And really, it's I just kind of view it as an, an extension of effect of caffeine. So while you may have cleared caffeine from your body, you now have another compound which is doing the same things. The remaining roughly like 16% of caffeine is metabolized into other methylxanthine compounds, again, just by different methyl groups being pulled away from them. And that's your theobromine, which you may have heard of as the substance found in cocoa. 
that also, again, acts very similarly with some slight tweaks compared to caffeine. It's less potent, quite notably, so it does require higher doses for a similar effect. Uh, does team seem to have a bit more of a body effect than the um, quite as much stimulation sort of heart effect? Uh, and theobromine can actually be excreted in urine. Worth noting following that theobromine too is that paraxanthine can also be excreted in urine. So these things clear out that way. Um, finally, a last sort of percent is theophylline. So about 4% of caffeine gets metabolized into the theophylline. This is actually a very potent methylxanthine. So at low doses, it has quite a high activity. And it is something that used to be used in a lot of asthma or like breathing medications. So it does have like a little bit more of an effect there. That said, that's more of a historical use case. There's better substances out there on the market now. Uh, you do still find it in some pre-workout formulations and is often associated with a little bit more of a like lightheadedness with the simulation. So kind of worth noting, probably not. The, the most ideal of the methylxanthine family to use as stimulation. So then say, like many people, you find you quite enjoy your cup of joe or that you enjoy your caffeine consumption from whatever means and you take it regularly. This is where we see a tolerance buildup occur and this is due to your body uh, standard homeostasis principle. So your body is trying to adapt to actually maintain its function of uh, adenosine binding to receptors to help make you sleepy when it wants to make you sleepy. So what happens is your body increases the number of adenosine receptors it will have on neurons so that even when you have all these caffeines bound to the adenosine receptors, the adenosine that is floating around from AT metabolism is still finding available parks or slots to plug into those adenosine receptors. The challenge then is that the caffeine becomes less and less uh, functional, but also when you have no caffeine in your system, then the adenosine has like a massive number of parks. It's, got, it's like an empty parking lot. It's just going to find them instantly and in like very available. And so that's where people will feel sleepier uh, than what they would otherwise. And so that's kind of what you consider like the baseline of the person has changed from uh, natural state of having more alertness and now it's a natural state of being maybe a little sleepier. So say you want to go cold turkey on caffeine for a while, maybe it's because you're finding it's no longer that helpful to you. Uh, most people generally just find that uh, caffeine is a core part of their life. But if you do find you want to go cold turkey, there is the kind of like withdrawal phase and that is due, again, because these are extra adenosine receptors. Um, the first day or two will probably have notably increased like lethargy. You're very, very tired. But generally people find that within one week of going completely caffeine-free, they kind of start to rebalance out and find the kind of fresh baseline. And that's as your brain again adapts and the adenosine receptors will decrease. So the, your number of adenosine receptors will decrease back to probably a similar baseline to previously. These withdrawal symptoms can last up to a week. Most people find that within a full month of full caffeine absence, uh, their baseline should reset very nicely. Then on overdosing with caffeine, uh, these are probably all symptoms everyone that has used caffeine kind of feels and often occurs um, when people are first trying cups of coffee and very sensitive. 
Um, those sort of feelings are dizziness, heart racing, increased feelings of anxiety, um, again, dehydration from increased urine output is a factor. So you want to drink a lot more water just if you are drinking caffeine full stop. And then also uh, gastrointestinal slash gut upset um, can be a factor too. If you've got a sensitive stomach, caffeine could be a contributor there. So now that we've been through all that kind of nitty-gritty, some nerdy side, um, I'd probably want to just finish up with some more take-homes and just general considerations. Um, I think the key note from all this that would be great to take away is that caffeine, coffee, tea, all of these things, like it's, it is a drug, it is acting on your body, and it's worth acknowledging that uh, it does have effects. People say they drink coffee and it has no effect on them. It is, is false as whether or not they have a noticeable effect is probably a different case and or if they are noticing the effects with all the other substances they're having. But it is a mind and body altering substance. There's definitely different effects on different people. Um, you can kind of go really deep on the metabolism side. For example, uh, smokers will have increased metabolism because they have an upregulation of that enzyme uh, cytochrome p450 and so that can make caffeine pass through them faster Uh, there's also all sorts of complementary or like co-actions that go along say nicotine and caffeine together seem to have a particularly potent kick so if you are a smoker with caffeine uh, you will notice that caffeine has a very different effect to those that don't smoke or if you ever go for an extended period without smoking In terms of dosages, up to 400 milligrams is generally accepted as safe by the kind of like world authority sort of points. That's 400 milligrams a day, ideally spread out across dosing. But in terms of practical dosing, uh, people generally find in the range of like 150 milligrams to even 300 as a kind of more functional, more useful dosing. Often in research, they'll use about 200 milligrams because that's... uh, easily measurable as it has an effect dose on people's focus mental clarity kind of motivation drive energy etc as we discussed tolerance buildup is a thing it doesn't take too many recurring uses in order to build that tolerance and also just because it's binding to these adenosine receptors for that period of time it gives that feeling of alertness doesn't mean that you uh, in fact don't need sleep you still need that sleep and also that onset of sleep feeling will hit harder just because the adenosine is still present and as soon as that caffeine is out that buildup of adenosine will kind of like try and flood in and bind to those receptors so you get more of a surge of sleepiness rather than a general onset like slow onset as you'd expect over a normal uncaffeinated day on whether we should actually be using caffeine on a regular basis or not it's kind of that's an each to their own sort of philosophical or moral perspective but what is reasonably sure is that taking breaks from caffeine does help people get more usefulness out out of it as a tool Uh, so that way you can maybe decrease tolerance down decrease effects of side effects etc Um, decrease the feeling of dependence even if it's just a behavioral or psychological dependence and with that you would find a shift in your mood and sort of behavior towards things with higher amounts of adrenaline and dopamine pumping around 
behaviorally, you might find yourself a little bit more narrow-minded or locked into specific paths of action without super high or without cranking up these neurotransmitters so much you might find a bit more of an ability for creativity. Um, that said, artists and creative people love caffeine because it just gets, you know, it gets the work done. And I think that's why it's sat in society so much is that it fuels capitalism or fuels the getting work done that um, we kind of live our life by these days. I'm going to wrap up here, but with the wrap up, I just want to say we've got some resources for further reading down in the notes and that will kind of talk on a lot more specifics too because really you could go on forever with this um, particularly parazanthine if you want to do more reading on effects of caffeine parazanthine being its big metabolite that is very worth looking into and i i would love it if there was more research on it um, it's not as widely discussed as i think it should be but with a wrap up i'm just going to do a quick little extract from the This Is Your Mind on Plants, um, just because fantastic book, obviously not uh, sponsored by Michael Pollan or anything, but it is a good conversation on substances like caffeine. So for context, this is after he has gone for an extended period where he has taken a break from caffeine to see what this sort of feeling of caffeine-free life feels like. Um, and he has talked like he went through all these phases that we kind of talked about in this, but this section is after he's consumed his first cup of coffee and I kind of think it's a fun one because it might remind you of what your first cup of coffee was like and um, yeah maybe what you're missing out on a little bit or might incentivize you to take a break for a little bit just to you know change life up. So this in his book reads I could almost feel the tiny molecules of caffeine spreading through my body fanning out through the arterial pathways sliding effortlessly through the walls of my cells slipping across the blood-brain barrier to take up stations in my adenosine receptors. Well-being was the term that best described the first feeling I registered, and this built and spread and coalesced until I decided euphoria was warranted. And yet there was none of the perceptual distortion that I associate with most other psychoactive drugs. My consciousness felt perfectly transparent, as if I were intoxicated on sobriety. But this was not the familiar caffeine feeling, the happy and grateful return to baseline as the first cup disperses the gathering fogs of withdrawal. No, this was something well up from baseline, almost as if my cup had been spiked with something stronger, something like cocaine or speed. Wow, is this stuff legal? I looked around me, taking in the mellow sidewalk scene, the kids in their strollers and the dogs trailing them for crumbs. Everything in my visual field seemed pleasantly italicized, filmic, and I wondered if all these people with their cardboard sleeve swaddled cups had any idea what a powerful drug they were sipping. But how could they? They had long ago become habituated to caffeine and were now using it for another purpose entirely, baseline maintenance, plus a welcome little lift. I felt lucky that this more powerful experience was available to me, this, along with the stellar sleeps, was the wonderful dividend of my investment in abstination. And my big takeaway there is like, yeah, taking a break is an interesting change. It has pros and cons, but that first cup or that first time taking caffeine after a break is a real rush, and I can attest to that uh, myself. I do enjoy that first caffeine hit after a break. So I'll leave you there. Thank you for listening to this episode two of Making Synapses. 
If you got any feedback or just have some extra insight or sharing, then we'd love to hear it. Have a good one.